This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today, I am joined by Global Strategy Advisor and best-selling author, Dr. Parag Khanna. Parag is the founder and managing partner of Future Map, a data and scenario-based strategy advisory firm and young global leader at the World Economic Forum and author of the latest book titled Move, The Forces Uprooting Us. Pleasure to have you on. Great to be with you, Ian. Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, we're definitely going to talk about the future trends that's happening today in terms of mobility, climate change, and what that all means to us and how we can be prepared for that. First, I want to start with the work you're doing at Future Map. I'm just reading through the types of initiatives that you guys have. It, it was really illuminating. So basically, you guys are providing data-driven economic and mobility forecasts which is informed by real-time digital models. Let's let's wrap our head around that. Um, uh, could you explain more what you do at Future Maps and the types of technologies and innovation that you're using there to help clients? Absolutely. I mean, we view ourselves as being at the intersection of data science, scenario forecasting, and visualization. So first and foremost, you know, we believe that data matters, that you have to really have data-driven analysis, do data-driven strategy. And we do that for companies and for governments both. When we work with governments, we'll be looking at a you know, five-year economic plan or an investment promotion strategy. And we'll be saying, okay, well, who are your major trade partners now? Where is the investment coming from? What are the sectors that you feel you want to expand into? Do you have the labor force, the talent, the educational system retooled around training people for those, uh, for those sectors, for those jobs? What kind of investments and technologies are you going to need to actually achieve that strategy? And this is obviously complexity. Uh, at work, you know, this is the real life kind of, you know, dilemma of trying to improve the conditions in an economy of a country. So we do a lot of projects like that. And of course, a lot of it has to do with manpower and talent, right? You know, where are you getting the smartest, the best and the brightest from? Do they want to come to your country? What, what kind of policies, immigration policies are you going to have to uh, undertake to get, again, to get the talent that you need? Then we do similar kinds of things for companies that want to understand where they need to be, where they should expand. Again, looking at the data, you know, what markets are they most presently in? Who's their competition? You know, what's their competitive advantage? Um, and so on and so forth. So that's just the data part. And then scenario planning is around saying, well, what could go right? What could go wrong, right? What are the things, what are the bumps that are likely to appear on the road? Um, and again, you know, visualizing the end state that you want and so on. And then mapping is, of course, very near and dear to my heart. And fortunately, I have an amazing team that, that works with me on doing both kind of static visualizations and data-driven kind of infographics, but also even animated maps that kind of project and show certain changes uh, on the map itself, you know, where populations are going to be moving, how climate change is affecting certain geographies and so forth. So put it all together and uh, that's what we get. Awesome. Now, uh, you're saying that you can almost predict through the data where movement is headed towards in innovation and in growth. I mean, obviously you can't give the secret sauce, but you can tell that from just analyzing data? 
Um, well, by analyzing data, you know, you can get, you can parse out a lot of things. I mean, it may be, you know, sort of data isn't just one data point, right? Lots of different things and you kind of, and every, everything in the world is sort of multi-causal, right? There are many drivers for any one particular phenomenon. And so part of the challenge and the trickiness in data science is trying to figure out what caused what and when and where. And that's why in a way there's almost no end to how much data you can collect. Um, and it becomes again, you know, sort of it becomes more and more complex the more data you ingest, but then you have a higher likelihood of telling the correct, accurate, truthful, comprehensive story of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the initiatives is the Belt and Road heat map. Can you explain what that is? Sure, absolutely. You know, China launched this uh, program called the Belt and Road Initiative about five or six years ago. And what it, it is a very comprehensive set of investments in infrastructure in countries around the world, particularly those that are its large trading partners, um, where it imports raw materials and natural resources from. But also it's about trade agreements and political cooperation and, and many other things to try and tie these countries closer together. And in particular, what we look at are the high growth Asian uh, countries, could be places like Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, it could be Thailand or Indonesia or Vietnam. And these are countries that have ever more intense relations with China, but more fundamentally, they're high growth, you know, dynamic, uh, emerging countries in and of themselves. And so the heat map uh, reports that we do take these countries and look at all of the trends within them, political trends, economic trends, social trends, environmental trends, regulatory trends, and, and kind of make some predictions around where these countries are going and what are the hot sectors, what are the opportunities for foreign investors, what are the risks. And so we do these reports about some of these countries that I mentioned before, because of course, Asia is the largest economic zone in the world, and it's not just China. It's uh, you know nearly 40 countries actually in Asia, and at least you know 15 of which are really significant and um, and really dynamic. So we we spotlight those countries and we analyze them as again you know as much a data driven and deeply analytical way as possible. From this data set and your analysis, I'm sure this has helped informed your latest book, Move. And I want to take a excerpt that sort of stuck out to me when, when reading. It says, America needs nothing less than a new manifest destiny in which Americans once again embrace physical mobility as the surest path to socioeconomic mobility. The new American dream is defined by mobility and skills, not homes and degrees. This is quite a claim. And it's also the focus of your, your latest title. So uh, could, could you walk me through a, a few of the trends that's happening now that you found that is leading you to this new vision? Well, actually, it's rather um, you know, promising that Americans are moving again. And the irony being that we have this kind of almost record levels of internal migration and movement in the United States during a pandemic. Because, of course, we thought we were locked down, or at least that's what we were told. We're supposed to be locked down. But a lot of Americans took it as an opportunity to move away from overpriced um, you know, coastal cities, New York and San Francisco, towards more affordable places. A lot of young people decided not to buy 
or move homes at all, but rather to uh, move into trailer homes and RVs and drive around and do their remote work that way or drive to places where jobs were more available. So all of those are examples of the rising mobility within the US. And, and as you quoted, you know, physical mobility is the best pathway towards economic mobility. You can't do much about your circumstances if you can't physically move. And so I celebrate that growing mobility. Um, and I'd like to see us enable, especially young people, to be more mobile physically um, and to create, in a way, I call this in the book, uh, Tinder for jobs. You know, we should literally have like a Tinder app where people can very rapidly uh, figure out or find out where a job might be appropriate for them and then hop into their RVs and drive and go there. And that's going to be, you know, contribute to a world in which young Americans and others around the world can kind of, you know, have a more of apprenticeship model of education, go and learn skills on the fly as you're doing them. And by all means, you know, study and go to college and, and you know, get formally trained as well. But you can even do that remotely as well today. So I really emphasize the importance of physical mobility. And ironically, this pandemic period is a good example of how important and how valuable it can be. Right. And can we get into that in terms of the major shifts in demographic changes that's providing this shift in, in trends? The, the shift in mobility is, um, you know, driven by, by many things. I, I try to highlight in the book the sort of deeper causes. And I look at uh, everything from political unrest and populism. So domestically, it could be, you know, I want to move from a red state to a blue state, you know, or something like that. It could obviously be internationally, things like uh, civil wars and conflicts. Uh, those are the political factors. There's economic factors as well. You know, the during the financial crisis of more than a decade ago, a lot of Americans move from north to south, right, from the Rust Belt to the Sun Belt, uh, as, as it's known. In Europe, people move from southern Europe, which is slightly poorer and has suffered high unemployment, towards northern Europe, countries like Germany, uh, that have been absorbing migrants into its dynamic and productive economy. And of course, technology, you know, you can have uh, your, if a factory closes where you're working, you lose your job, you move away from that place. Or digitization, right? Because you can be a knowledge worker, a digital nomad, you can move wherever you want. Before the pandemic, there were like two countries that had nomad visas. And today there are like 75 countries that have nomad visas. Wow. In other words, places that are saying, come one, come all, if you're young and talented, we want you to come and you know, rent our Airbnb properties and you know, sit and hang out in our cafes and co-working spaces. Because the pandemic taught us that you kind of miss people when they're gone. You know, your movie theater, your grocery store, or your hotels, your restaurants, um, you know, with all of these things shut down, countries realize that mobility is such an essential part of their economy, having people come and go, having people circulate and move around. So that's what I emphasize throughout the book that, you know, mobility is, is the secret sauce, you know, and of so many other and better things in life. And if we don't have that mobility, then, um, then you know, we're, we're, we're starving ourselves of opportunities. And, and we're dealing with uh, one aging population. There's many reports that are indicating that uh, declining rates of migrants. And one that you mentioned was the climate change effects on the economy. Looking at different areas, 
that may be most subjected to droughts or, or rising sea levels, Miami, or in terms of droughts like Texas, that's also affecting mobility. Another thing that you mentioned that I didn't think about was the pandemic baby bus. Could, could you elaborate of what that is and, and how that may af- affect uh, mobility and trends in general? Right. Well, we should talk about climate change and the baby bust in a way uh, sort of together at the same time, mm-hmm. because pen- the climate change has been, you know, sort of accelerating, obviously. You know, it's really altered youth psychology in particular. Young people now are very, are averse to having children because they feel that it contributes to accelerating climate change because more people means more resource consumption and so forth. And then on top of that, you have the economic insecurity that has been deepening since the financial crisis and now also with the pandemic. And so the combination of climate consciousness and economic insecurity has really led to a very severe baby bust, a contraction in fertility, particularly in the last 10 or 15 years. As a result of that, it seems like Generation Alpha, who are today's toddlers and babies, that generation is going to be smaller than Gen Z. So Gen Z is literally the largest generation of human beings that our species will ever produce. There are about 1.9 billion kids all over the world who are Gen Z today, right now. And Gen Alpha is going to be smaller than Gen Z because of these baby busts. So it's really been quite devastating for the overall fertility trend, uh, these economic and, and climate variables. On the other hand, you might say, well, this is a good example of, of the human species self-correcting because our population has gotten too big, our resource consumption is too extreme and dire, and we're creating obviously very negative chain reactions uh, for the global environment. So in order to self-correct, we should stop quote unquote, you know, having, having children. Now, of course, we're still having children. We need to make, maintain a certain balance across generations because if suddenly, if no person under the age of 30 ever had a child again, the human species would disappear in 50 or 60 years, right? We would literally cease to exist. So we need to get the balance right between young and old and do so in an, in, in a, in an environmentally sustainable way. I'm sure that happens naturally. Uh, you know, <laughs> is it's harder to design that. Uh, look at you know last twenty years of you know the one child rule in China and the the results of that. Something that you really can't design. But the, I understand what you're saying with the environmental forces, how that affects the economy and it makes people less likely to uh, have children because of what we're dealing with today. Definitely we'll reach that that balance and a sustainable balance. That's that's interesting. I was curious, and this is just a overall idea. I wanted to know like what did you mean by saying we, we must move beyond sovereignty towards stewardship? Those are those are two big ideas and I just wanted to get your take on that. Well yeah, they certainly relate to the climate change factor, which is such, such a driving force, for, you know, in, in today's transformation that the world is, is undergoing. And sovereignty is still the political principle that governs international relations. It's the division of the world 
into different states, you know, separated by borders. But of course, environmental problems are transnational and global in nature, and they require that we think beyond simply whether or not we as one country will survive climate change because we're affected by what happens in other countries. So we have to think not just in terms of what is our sovereign responsibility only to our own people in that narrow sense and think much more broadly about stewardship. How are we going to share resources to protect the planet? How are we going to share resources to help people adapt to climate change? Now, you know, with the COP26 summit, there's a huge focus on climate mitigation, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and decarbonizing industries and investing in alternative and renewable energy. And all of those things are extremely important. But we also have to invest in climate uh, adaptation. And adaptation might mean uh, helping people to relocate, to physically move. And in a way, while we're waiting for the countries and companies of the world to reduce their emissions and to, uh, you know, sort of, quote unquote, save the planet, still hundreds of millions of people are being affected by droughts and floods and heat waves and forest fires and rising sea levels all the time. We need better adaptation. We need to help them adapt. And that literally means the, the safest, most effective, the fastest, most logical way to help someone adapt to climate change is to help them move, to literally move. So what are some of the solutions? We have an understanding mobility is going to become more uh, a thing for younger populations, even older. Uh, climate change will force migration to a certain extent. And again, the aging population and low birth rates, it's going to force us to be more agile in this economic situation. So there's a lot that we have to contend with, you know. <laughs> well, today's, you know, today's young people, such as yourself, are the most mobile generation in the history of the world. And you're, we're mobile not only because of globalization and infrastructure, investment and connectivity, you know, passports that give us access to more countries, the fact that there's no more Cold War, but it's a kind of global capitalist system and all of these sorts of things. But also because unlike, you know, our parents or grandparents generation that aspired to live that American dream, the way I was describing, you know, the way we were kind of caricaturing earlier, just to settle down and own a house and have a mortgage and never move. Um, you know, the, the factors that compelled people and convinced them and that that was the norm are, have kind of disappeared because back then there was economic insecurity. Back then a home was affordable and, and today it's different. And back then they were having children. So they needed to kind of stay in one place and settle down. But today's young people have economic insecurity, they don't own homes, and they're not having children. So not having children makes you a lot more mobile, not owning a home makes you a lot more mobile. And being economically insecure means that you're willing to move to find a better job. Uh, and so in a way, again, this is all reinforcing the new and growing reality of constant mobility, that you, because young people are mobile and they really represent um, the present and the future of our world. I'm with you, too. You, you said 
the the rv i was like i'm with you into maybe the rv i was like yeah, can i see myself in an rv in term i know how you say we're becoming more uh, mobile and there's less emphasis on degrees but home ownership uh, as you mentioned before the the american dream is you know get a home out in the suburbs you know have 2.5 kids and, and a dog why is that a dream or that aspiration uh, becoming less so? And I mean, we can talk about the, the price appreciation of homes over the last, definitely since the pandemic has spiked, um, but now it's becoming out of our price range for a, a, a large portion of, let's say, millennials and soon to be Gen Z's. Um, Who's owning those homes? <laughs> I know this is a little bit outside of your wheelhouse, but you're saying like home ownership. No, no, no. It's, is, uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> it's a central argument in the mm -hmm. book. You know, and again, you know, young people are more likely to move and to be renters, not be able to afford to buy. Prices may remain high because the, the market is, you know, artificially propping them up. Um, and, uh, you know, again, there's a lot of assets being transferred. Uh, between young and old to some degree, but young people don't necessarily even want to live in big McMansions uh, if they don't have kids, you know, in suburban areas and that sort of thing. So it's hard to generalize about, you know, a sort of right. typical young person. Um, although in a way you can, and as I say, the, the, the sort of typical person in the world today is not a married couple with two kids living in suburbia. You know, the typical human being today is young, is single, does not have children, lives in a city, and is economically insecure. That's the typical person in the world today. And I make that person the hero of this book, the protagonist of this book, because I'm concerned about the billions of people who are like that. And all of the people who are like that are basically young people. And I want to think about what are the policies, the strategies um, that we should employ in order to help those people be the most productive and successful and prosperous that they can be in in the coming decades that they'll still be alive. So how can we best be prepared for this uh, future that you're envisioning? I know we sort of touched upon it throughout this conversation, but someone who reads your book gets an understanding of the global trends um, where innovation is happening, where growth is happening, where mobility is happening, and they may be new to the economy or, you know, uh, they have migrated to the United States and they want to put their best foot forward. Um, how can we best be prepared for this shift in trends so we can be able to capitalize and maximize our efforts in this new changing future? Well, first of all, you want to have that capacity to move. You want to be mobile. The number one skill in a way of the future is itself to be mobile, to be physically mobile or digitally mobile, or to have skills that you can deploy either by moving to different places or online. So that, again, mobility and connectivity really go hand in hand. And that's what I advocate for young people. You know, again, going back to this idea of a Tinder for jobs. You know, if there's a good job somewhere on the other side of the country, you don't want to be pinned down by a home and a mortgage and unable to go to that job while you're under heavy debt. That's a terrible situation to be in. So therefore, um, you know, I don't have an RV, 
but I just, you know, kind of uh, use it as an example of the new flexibility and mobility. But you could just as soon talk about how you could bounce around between affordable Airbnbs, you know, um, if you wanted to in different places. But the primary thing that matters is that young people work, that they have jobs, that they get jobs, that those jobs are good, and that they can move around to those jobs. Because unlike, again, in the past, you don't necessarily know where your next job is going to be. Right. For future maps, I'm really interested in about your guys' next projects or initiatives. So what's around the corner for you? Well, we're in the middle of, um, you know, uh, this sort of process of um, building a whole algorithm around, uh, it's called Climate Alpha, and it compiles and aggregates all of these variables that have influenced the price of land and the price of real estate around America and starts to make predictions around, you know, where people are are moving, what the price of real estate is going to be. Um, And that can be residential, it can be apartments as as well as homes, it can be commercial um, and it can be agricultural or industrial. And we're looking at the kind of whole real estate market in America, which is $40 trillion and trying to sort out and predict its future. So that's a huge exercise that we're deeply uh, engaged in at uh, Future Map. Yeah, that goes to the home ownership. Uh, yeah, man, if you, if you find any leads, I might have to <laughs> be in on one of those conversations. Oh, okay, where's the best place to buy a house? Uh, <laughs> Montana. Exactly. That's the, that's the question that we want to answer. Right. For anybody who's uh, interested in these ideas, this new and really innovative take on the future trends. Where can they find you? And more importantly, where can they get this book? Well, um, you can find me online, paragkhanna.com, P-A-R-A-G-K-H-A-N-N-A. The book is now everywhere, Um, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you name it. Uh, People are sending me photos of the book in different (laughs) bookstores. I have yet to go to a bookstore and see one because I've been... uh, Kind of, you know, well, I've been traveling, but I've just been so busy. I haven't been able to walk into a bookstore. You don't really get a get time to celebrate when you're on a book tour, funny enough. But uh, but it's everywhere. And I think, you know, especially for young Americans, this is really for you. You know, I wrote this book for young people of the world and especially for those who are fortunate enough to come from a country like America and have the opportunities to move. And, you know, my my word of advice is to take it. Absolutely. Dr. Parag, thank you so much for coming on and and providing your insights and a little peer into uh, possible futures so that people who are listening right now can start preparing today for the world tomorrow. Thank you so much for coming on. Such a pleasure. So great to speak with you. Thanks, Ian. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.